another episode. I'm so excited uh, to be sharing my conversation with Alexis with you all. She has a really inspiring story and I think just her work um, that she's doing for people in recovery from anything from addiction to alcohol, substance abuse, etc. is so admirable and um, it's really cool to just see how she turned her pain into passion which is then you know just empowering others to become their best selves. And um, so I encourage you all to check out her work. Um, But before I dive into the episode, I want to quickly talk about one of my sponsors, which is Talkspace. Um, It's, you know, we're almost two months into 2022. And I know I personally have had some ups and downs and spoken to my therapists multiple times. Um, So if you are you know struggling a little bit or thinking about you know checking out therapy but don't know how to get started I know I've had people reach out and say you know there's like a four to six week waiting list for the therapist I want to see what should I do do you even do you know anyone and you know my answer is always to first check out Talkspace especially if you are waiting for you know a four to six week waiting list or something like that um, so I can give you $100 off your first month if you go to Talkspace.com and use the code Zoe at checkout. So highly encourage it. It's a really great way to dip your toes into therapy. Um, just go to Talkspace.com and use the code Zoe, Z-O-E, at checkout for $100 off your first month of therapy. It doesn't really get better than that. Anyways, without further ado, here is Alexis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so excited and really honored to be here with Alexis Haynes, who was the face of the Bling Ring. Um, it was a former reality TV star and now is an advocate for mental health and host of the podcast Recovering from Reality. Alexis, thank you so much for being here. It's truly an honor, and I'm just so excited to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so, just to kind of start things off, if you don't mind telling me just a little bit about yourself, like where are you from? How old are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your story? Yeah, I am almost 31, which is crazy because <laughs> I feel like I just turned 30 and this year has gone so fast. Yeah, so fast. I'm born and raised here in Southern California. I'm a mother of two incredible kids, um, the partner of my husband, Evan. We've been married for just shy of 10 years. Wow. And yeah, that's like <laughs> me in a nutshell. Perfect. Um, so, you know, some people may know you or uh, know of you from your involvement in the the bling ring, which for those listening who are unfamiliar with this um, Hollywood scandal, which now that I think about it, I'm like older than much of the demographic that listens to my my podcast. But basically, uh, the, the Bling Ring was a group of teenagers living in and around uh, Calabasas, California, um, who stole a lot of money from 
um, a, a lot of dollars worth of jewelry, handbags, money, etc., from celebrities, including Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, Orlando Bloom, Megan Fox, Rachel Bilson, and more. Um, your time on the bling ring was actually brief, but unfortunately, I think you know that was wrapped into your story. Um, so I was hoping, and also it overlapped with a time in your life that you were you were partying and using drugs and. Um, those things can often, you know, obviously cause us to make poor decisions you wouldn't make sober. So I was wondering if you could talk to me just a little bit about how you got involved in this group and kind of how they used you as like the the face almost, even though you weren't in doing all of the the terrible things that some of the other people did. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just kind of shy away from, like, labels altogether. Like, I, when I speak about this now as someone who is almost 11 years sober, um, next month it'll be 11 years. Wow. Congrats. I really try to see this from a place of, like, empathy for all parties. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the bling ring had different motivations. I can't speak for their, theirs, but I do empathize with them. Um, I also obviously empathize with the victims. Um, but I know that for me, uh, yeah, I partook in one of the burglaries. It was of Orlando Bloom's home. And I my motivations were to continue to get high. Like at that point, I didn't have my reality show. I didn't have an income. I was panhandling for drug money most days, considering becoming a stripper or a sex worker, which is to each their own. But for me as someone who has such an extensive history with early childhood and then eventually just childhood and even as a teenager, sexual abuse, um, that would have been a recipe for disaster. And so, yeah, my motivations were to like get money to get high. And that's, that's what I did. Um, I would do whatever it took to get money to get high. And so, uh, yeah, I think it is definitely interesting. You know, I always say this, like addiction doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. It isn't something that it's just like, oh my God, that person's a junkie. It's like when we look at society as a whole, we're, we're a very sick society here in the Western world. We prioritize um, this kind of like toxic, macho individualism over caring about the collective. We, um, we like to ostracize people. We like to make them bad and us good. And so it makes sense like – and obviously then there's like living under a patriarchy and under capitalism and there's misogyny and there's all of these things that come into play when we talk about like the way in which I was portrayed um, in the media. And to me, it just makes like perfect sense. Like the story of Nick and Rachel, these two, I don't want to say nobody in the way of like nobody, but these two just kids from Calabasas robbing celebrity homes. I mean, since the bling ring, there have been 
so many robberies that have taken place in many other celebrities' homes, and it just doesn't make news. And the reason why it made the news that it did was because I'm a female, because there was, like, media attention around me already, and because sex sells, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's such a good point, and it really is true, and it's sad how they can like weaponize someone and and really take advantage of just what they're going through and you know at the time you were in your addiction and not making the best choices and people like are smart and they know how to take advantage of people who are in a vulnerable position and that's exactly what they did yeah Um, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me and I have zero regrets and and people often hear that and go think one of two things wow like you don't care about the fact that you were like slandered in the media and that you went to jail and all the things and the answer is no I don't and then the second part is wow you have no remorse that's also not true I do Mm -hmm. um and I've spoken about this extensively like in a weird way Orlando Bloom ended up saving my life, right? And so while, you know, present-day Alexis would have never done what 18-year-old Alexis did, um, and it was the catalyst that led to me getting to where I'm at today as a 31-year-old woman with 11 years of sobriety who dedicates her life to helping people. And so... The issue is is always nuanced. It's never black or white. Nothing ever is. Yeah. Um. It's it's challenging, and I think a lot of people don't like challenge. We we aren't taught how to be critical thinkers. We aren't taught how to be emotionally intelligent, and so we make these like kind of broad sweeping generalizations about people that are toxic and harmful. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And kind of going, you know, off of that, so quickly after this whole scandal happened, you were brought into the reality TV world, which was kind of just beginning at the time. It's wild to think, you know, that not that long ago, um, reality TV wasn't as big as it is now because literally every channel you turn on right now is a different reality TV show. Um, But you were approached to uh, film a pilot of a show that was later called Pretty Wild. Um, And I mean, there's countless examples of of people who, you know, experienced reality television or or went on reality television. I've I've interviewed a couple and um, had pretty difficult experience or traumatizing experience. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little to that and how that, you know, shaped the trajectory of of your life. Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, it kind of, it's like one of those things where, have you ever heard the saying, wherever you go, there you are? My mom used to say, wherever you are, be there. So I don't know if that's the same. Not the same. It's like, it doesn't, reality TV is just a mirror reflecting you and your deepest wounds back to yourself and the whole life experience that's all that life really is right it's Mm -hmm. like it is just a mirror for us and for me I think that the trauma 
came in, not that I'm some victim, but like the trauma came in that like that mirror was not just reflecting back to me, but to millions of people who have opinions about that mirror. Yeah. That was, that was definitely hard. Um, and I'm also grateful for it. I mean, that's the thing where I talk about like coming to this place of neutrality or not being a black or white thinker. It's like, gave me the platform that I have today to do the work that I do. So mm-hmm. don't have any regrets. Really? How, how long were you on the show for? Um, I think the totality of filming was only like eight or nine months and it only went for one season. Got it. Yeah. And I think, and it overlapped with your, you know, initial journey to begin recovery if I'm if I'm not mistaken no I didn't get sober so we finished filming I ended up accepting a plea deal I couldn't fight my case any longer because my addiction was so bad so I accepted a plea deal and that was kind of the end of the show I went off to jail we were waiting to find out if we got a second season or not we did not get picked up for a second season because my addiction and Tessa's addiction was just too bad. And so I got out and yeah, I had like literally nothing. So a couple of questions. First off, you know, after that happened and, and you just said, you know, you had literally nothing. How did you hold on? Like, how did you get through that time of feeling like you had nothing? I went back to using drugs and I think that that's um, part of the reason why I treat addiction the way that I do. I don't approach it as a behavioral health issue because that puts all of the onus on the person like as if somehow they can just change their behavior and then their addiction will change. Um, I think it's much more so about giving people hope and a will and a desire to live. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't have that. Um, Most addicts have burnt every bridge. Most addicts don't have a loved one that cares about them anymore. Like most people, you know, and I understand that it's hard to be loving and empathetic towards someone who is suffering and then acting out on that suffering and creating chaos and yeah I didn't really have like hope like that it was going to get better and so of course when you have no hope and no coping mechanisms what are you going to do you're going to go and use drugs so yeah yeah I'm not sure if you watch euphoria but I don't oh you don't really yeah I just think it's too too romanticizing the the drug scene No, I don't even feel that. I just, for me, I am very selective about the type of content that I consume. Yeah. And uh, my mental health, I'm someone who, like, does not take any mental health medication. Um, Not because that's a choice, because my body just says no to all drugs. And so... Uh, yeah, what I would give for some Lexapro uh, right now, actually. Put it, shoot me up with some lithium, please. Like, yeah, I can get. 
no, there's there. I've tried them all. Uh, they don't. They seem to make me worse, not better. Um, and so I'm just very conscientious of like the like. I don't like doing things that raise my cortisol levels. Yeah. And TV shows definitely can have that impact. So I'm just really. Again, just super selective about the type of media that I consume. That's smart because this season certainly would be raising your cortisol levels. It's been like wild, but I think they are doing a good job of just showing how addiction can just like slow, like showing that process of like the burning of the bridges and how you want to love the person, but it's um, Zendaya is just such an incredible um, actor in, in, showing that in in my opinion um but I'm curious so then when did you begin that sobriety journey and what was that you know some people talk about how there is like um a lowest point so I'm gonna say there's like no lowest point in addiction lower yeah yeah um there's definitely always lower so I got out I I knew it's interesting I had this moment in jail I kicked in jail cold turkey. Clearly, like, it was illuminated through that process that, like, drugs are probably an issue for you. But I thought it was just the heroin and the crack and whatever else I was doing that was the issue, not, like, drinking or smoking pot. So um, I get out of out of jail, and I immediately go and get, you know, blacked out. And I find myself, like, crying in my shower at home and uh you know and and then that low in my bathroom I just kind of had this moment of like fuck it I need to get high that's the only thing that's going to fix this again no coping skills whatsoever I was 19 years old didn't know didn't know anything um which is funny because when I got to rehab I thought I knew everything it was I was such a nightmare but um So I immediately started using again, and that led to, of course, an increase in poor decision-making, like not going to probation, not drug testing, not doing all of these things. And so uh, guess what? The cops came and arrested me again, and there was a perspective shift that happened shortly thereafter. I ended up getting a year in treatment in lieu of six years of prison time, which is how it should be across the board. Yeah. Just because I'm white and privileged. And, um, and so I go into treatment and again, I'm fighting like tooth and nail. I ended up relapsing on some whippets, uh, March, March 8th, 2011. Uh, and I had this epiphany in mid whippet high of like, Oh my God, it's not the drugs. It's you like, you're the problem. It's, it has nothing to do with the drugs at all. And so, um, that kind of, that's actually the moment that kind of brought me to my knees. It, it wasn't the moment in the bathroom. It wasn't going to jail. It wasn't my parents, you know, hating me. It wasn't my sister hating me. It wasn't burning every bridge that I'd ever had. It wasn't, wasn't any of those things. It was, um, that moment. And, you know, and I think that again, like 
I should have gone to prison over that moment, technically, because I violated my probation. And also, I shouldn't have because that was the moment that I actually needed to, like, get me to the other side. Mm-hmm. And so after that moment, I was like, oh, my God, I got to do whatever the fuck it takes to get sober and to change my thinking and to change my way of life and to somehow, like, get rid of these intense cravings. And and it wasn't even cravings for drugs. It was – and this is where the title of my podcast, Recovering from Reality, comes from. It's like my my only goal in life was to escape my reality, to check out. That's it. I just wanted to check out of my existence. The pain was too much. And so the recovery came in when I had this deep desire, and this is what that bottom brought me to, to check into my reality reality to be here to be in this body to be okay with being alexis to feel safe and secure and to know that like i'm taken care of like that i that i can heal and that was hard that took a long time to get there but um it was absolutely worth all of the heartache and and all of the bottoms and all of the things. And I, I am really fortunate that that was it for me um, because there are far worse. You know, I've buried many friends in my 11 years of sobriety. Um, I've lost lots of patients. I've, yeah, I mean, there's always, there's always a worse bottom, you know, yeah. dying by yourself on the floor of a McDonald's bathroom for a fentanyl overdose is pretty fucking awful. Yeah. Wow. It seems like almost in that moment of realization, it didn't come from a place of blame though. It came from a place of empowerment. Like as in, I mean, yeah. I correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it was like, I, it isn't the drugs. This is me. This is something I can fix. Yeah. It was, it was just this kind of, awe awe and like awestruck moment it was like aha like that's what it is like oh my god because I had been in treatment going like oh no I'm just opiate dependent because I got physically hooked and once I was physically hooked I couldn't stop and I I had like every every freaking excuse that you could ever imagine I was like too smart for my own good and too full of ego to like admit the fact and it was funny because right before that I had this counselor he actually died of an overdose um maybe six years ago and he he had I think like seven years at the time and his name was Robert and we were in a group and I was you know talking out of my ass in the group and just being a shit starter and Robert said, you know, most most normal people wouldn't have picked up heroin in the first place. Like, that's, like, not, like, a normal thing to do. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's not normal. And, and so, you know, it was, like, a number of things that kind of brought me to that realization. But, you know, in that moment, I was doing the whippets, and I realized that I was here I was escaping with a drug I'd never used before. 
um, after I told everyone that I was fine and, like, I wasn't a junkie. And here I am, like, fiending in a parking lot to, like, fry my brain cells to the point where I have a trip. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, it's not the drugs, you know? The drugs really aren't the problem at at all. Um, Neither is, you know, it's like, because everything can be addictive. Like, our cell phone, sex, working out shopping mm-hmm. relationships all of those things can be addictive anything can be addictive yeah it's all to fill a void yeah and so it's like oh okay so once i can get past like that i can then do something about it yeah absolutely and not you know just remove the drugs from my life yeah i i heard i, f- I forget I think it was on a podcast, but it's like unless you do that that self work first, if you just remove the drugs, you're gonna find something else that's self harm. Um, and also, so I, I wanted to kind of go back a little because you know you said it's not the drugs, it's me, but I I don't think it's you. I think it's experiences that occurred when you were younger and granted I'm I'm I brought this up on like every single podcast I've recorded in the last couple of weeks because I'm reading um, Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk yeah and great books if anyone's interested I'm like listening to it so it's like 14 hours of Mm -hmm. you know this like I don't know German guy um but the con the concept of the book is that you know your body is so fucking smart it protects you when you're younger from things that it knows that will hurt you but then also you hold on to that pain and it manifests in whether it's addiction or um um you know self-harm or just lashing out it can manifest in so many different ways and you might not even know some of these things because your body your mind shut off and kind of disassociated when, when they occurred. So, you know, you mentioned a history of sexual abuse and um, during your, your work in recovery, were you able to make those connections between your, your childhood and how it may have impacted or led you to the drugs in the first place? I mean, yeah, I think, of course I had a, a million big T traumas and little T traumas and, um, and those things absolutely shape like your neurodevelopment and your subconscious beliefs, which eventually turn into your thoughts and into your reality. And I've done, you know, that's kind of like the basis of the work that I do with people today. But at the end of the day, it's still, it's you. Like these are all the things that have made up you. And these are your thoughts and your perceptions and your experience. And this is your body and this is your brain. And do we need support? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it is kind of like a solo mission, you know? And so Mm -hmm. there was, for me, just this moment of like, you're the only one that's going to fix this. Like, it's your beliefs, it's your thinking, it's your trauma, it's your pain, and it's what you do with it. And I had to be willing to go and do something about it. Yeah, it's like you you have to meet the person where there are in terms of like kind of the opposite side with the therapy portion. Yeah. And 
do you feel like through those 11 years of recovery, you've been able to kind of separate, you know, what was due to traumatic events versus like what was actually you? I mean, at the root of who I am, you know, um, I am a grounded, calm, loving, supportive, healthy, thriving individual. And I'm also complex and chaotic and all all of the things. I think sometimes we can just really get like wrapped up into like our diagnosis and like all of these things and was it the trauma and what was it? And it's like I 100% believe in like that deep shadow work, that deep healing work that needs to happen. Um, And I also believe in like the energetic part of it too. Like we can really, I can get really wrapped up in that story and that victimhood and, and whatever it might be. And it's like, I have to also remind myself of like who I really am and try my best to like align with that energy and to move through my life with that perception rather than the alternative, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that's just what's worked for me. It's like, I did, I remember I did therapy. I was in therapy for like seven years. Therapy's great. Yeah. Therapy. I think therapy is awesome. And I was going to so many meetings still and all of these things. And then I kind of realized along the way that like they were keeping me in the story and not in like my present reality. And so I yeah. think that's kind of like where I'm at today. It's like trying to be more just in like the healed, whole, happy, complete, like who Alexis should have been minus said trauma as like a fully functioning adult. <laughs> rather than as the alternative. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that because I completely agree. I mean, I'm a huge therapy advocate, obviously. Um, But I do think there were often times where every therapy session I had was just sitting in rumination of what happened and what I could have done differently as opposed to, okay, that happened, what now? That is what it is. And so it's like if we – and I think – the tricky thing is that we want to fix it. We want control and mm-hmm. fixing and the control actually just drives us fucking crazy. Can I cuss? Sorry. Oh yeah. <laughs> just drives us crazy. And so we become, we're on this constant feedback loop of like, this happened to me and that's why I'm this way. And this happened to me and that's why I'm this way. And it's like, no, you actually don't have to be that way anymore. And what it takes is, sitting in the feelings of what and accepting what is and making a conscious choice to do something different and to do something different and to do something different. And for me, that means aligning my energy with something different, doing things that make me feel good, prioritizing the things that make me feel good and just following the bliss. Yeah. Makes sense. I love that. I need to do that more in my, my own life, I think. Um, so I wanted yeah. to, yeah, absolutely. I think we all need to live in the present a little bit more. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about the work you do now. Um, 
your mm-hmm. partner owns Oro Recovery Center. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and and you're obviously a huge mental health and uh, recovery advocate. So if you don't mind just talking a little bit more about, you know, the people you work with and, and how you help them and just some like words of wisdom that you can pass along. Yeah, I think um, it's been an honor to watch Evan create Oro House. Um, it really stemmed from what I was talking about before when it came to like the behavioral modification approach. I mean, the truth is that uh, drug addiction and mental health treatment are really unsuccessful uh, most of the time, unfortunately. It's said that only like 18% of people stay sober after their first rehab and people are paying so much money to go to treatment. And so we had to kind of look at like, why is this happening? And is there like a better approach that moves away from traditional 12 step and away from traditional behavioral modification and incorporates what we knew worked and we figured out what worked um, kind of out of this weird situation, uh, we started hosting in, in a Friday night meeting uh, at, at our, we had opened a sober living and we we're doing a Friday night meeting for the community. And it really just came out of a place of like judgment free zone. We just want to connect with people. Mm-hmm. That's all we care about is connection about giving people a place to remind them of who they really are, to remind them of their happiness, to remind them that like happiness and joy is possible. And what we saw was like people kept coming back and the meeting kept getting bigger. And um, we were like, okay, we're kind of like onto something here. And Evan and Jared, his business partner and Bob um, created the slogan that we've then developed a program around, which is connection, not control. And the goal of our work is to connect with people and meet them where they're at and love them basically unconditionally, unconditionally with boundaries, of course. But, um, and it really also came from my experience too in treatment. Like I didn't really get shit out of the groups in the first year like I wasn't really ready to do the work I just needed to like have a place where I felt loved and cared for and I got that through the people not through the therapists and so and that's what kept me coming back right is those connections and so um we developed a holistic non-12-step uh program that is really tailored to each individual that focuses on not changing behaviors, get dropping all of the shame and just loving on people and hoping that they have such a good experience that they want to keep coming back. They want, they want to stay for as mm-hmm. long as for them, for their brains to calm down, for their meds to kick in, for the, for their lives to start getting better. And that we hope that they'll get so attracted to that, that they'll, they'll want to keep doing the work. They'll want to do the things that make them feel better. And of course there's group therapy and one-on-one therapy, but it really is like the approach. Um, it's about, uh, not being like hierarchical, like that the therapists are somehow better than, than the clients. It's just about being relatable, being kind, um, 
and again just like being in full acceptance of you know and non-judgment of where people are at I love that so much and it's it reminds me I mean obviously very different but it's I think the mission and and approach is so similar to why I started this podcast is like to create conversations around difficult topics like addiction and suicide and um, eating disorders and things like that because I want everyone listening to tune in and realize that they're not alone and like whether they're listening to me one-on-one or if they're listening you know they're just tuning in with their earphones they get that sort of connection because I I found that with podcasts and granted they were like dating podcasts so I was like well if you know if I can connect with feel like I'm connecting with someone um who's giving me advice on how to like make my hinge profile I hope that people can tune in connect with my guests on what they're speaking to and realize that they're not alone in their struggles and that things can get better and I think that your approach is just amazing and I and I wish there were more um groups around the country like it I mean I will say that I think that the statistics speak for themselves I mean we we've been rated I mean Newsweek is kind of like the end-all be-all when it comes to rating podcasts they have like an extensive team that does thorough research and we've been we were number three last year number one this year wow our success rate after one year of sobriety so following up with clients who came to stay with us is 50 percent hovers around 50 percent so if you're looking at the national average of 18 percent 50% is like a huge gap. That means like half of our patient population, when they come and they stay and they do the work, 50% stay sober. And that's incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. And and congrats. That's something you should just be so proud of. And I'm sure you are. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm so impressed with Evan and the whole team. And it's an honor to, um, it's an honor to just be a part of this family and to be a part of these people's lives. We love what we do. Love that. Um, so I always wrap up with a few questions that are somewhat unrelated to the podcast, somewhat very in line. Um, Mm -hmm. the first question being what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today. Um, coming out as queer is definitely, I mean, in sobriety after nine years of being in a heteronormative marriage and appearing to have the perfect life. I mean, that was really hard and the best thing that I ever did. So did you do that while you were in recovery? Yeah. Wow. Just recently, actually back in May. Congrats. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? I do. Yeah. I don't believe in accidents. Yeah. It sounded like that when you said, you know, you don't have any, like it was the best thing that happened to you. And yeah, I agree. Um, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Ah, uh, yes. Um, it used to be something else, but this one really stuck with me. How do we treat others? There are no others. 
meaning like you are me and I am you and you are as worthy as I am of love and peace and joy and all of the things like there are there is no separation oh I love that that's that's my like wheelhouse I've got to add that to one of my favorite quotes like I'm all about you know just not of being kind because you never know someone's story and you never know what they've been through you never know if they've had a, a bad day and just whether it's your friend or a person who's in line ahead of you at the supermarket like yeah cost zero dollars to be a kind person um what do you love most about yourself well I used to say my resilience but I don't feel that way anymore um I would say my kindness that like I'm a really kind person yeah, you seem like it. And I think the work you're doing is incredible. Why do you not feel that way about resilience? I'm just curious. I used to wear resilience as if it was this badge of honor. And upon reflecting, even though I have no regrets and I don't wish I would change anything, and I acknowledge how my resilience kept me strong I sometimes feel like I never wish I had to be resilient in the first place yeah no that's true I, I spoke with um someone who was on last week's episode and she was a survivor of like a narcissistically abusive uh, relationship and she said she used one thing she works on with her clients is that um to not make like things that they will say like affirmations and things they love about themselves, but not make them like dependent on someone else. So for example, I couldn't say my favorite thing is that I'm an empathetic person because mm -hmm. that in, is conditional or, you know, on helping someone else as opposed to I'm funny or like I'm hilarious. I, I'm mm -hmm. a good time. So saying things that aren't necessarily rooted in like your resilience because you came out of like something difficult, but rather I'm a kind person, which is just a fact. Yeah. And last question, which is the name of the podcast is how do you find solace in the city and city could be LA, um, whatever you want it to be. Oh, nature, nature. 100%. I love living in California cause I get to go to the beach anytime. Very <laughs> jealous. It's great. Amazing. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on this podcast. It really means the world. Where can everyone learn more about you, learn more about Oro um, Recovery, and um, just any resources that you have for people dealing with addiction that you think would be helpful, would be amazing to pass along? Um, so you can visit my website, recoveringfromreality.com, and that's where you can find information about my podcast, my podcast Recovering from Reality is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also check out my Life Reset course on my website. If you want to follow me on Instagram, you can at It's Alexis Haynes. Um, you can follow my Recovering from Reality Instagram, just same name. <laughs> and um, if you want to learn more about Oro House, you can just look it up online and learn more about us. Amazing. Well, thank you again and bye, everyone.